Church, so good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Matthew. We will be in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, for those of you that are new to Redeemer, maybe this is your first or second time, uh, I just want to say that we're so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jonathan Galvan. I get to serve as a pastor of corporate worships most Sundays, getting to lead the band. But this morning, excited uh, to get to open up God's Word with you. Uh, over the last few weeks and months, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we have come to the conclusion of Jesus's message. And it's at this point that Jesus shifts gears and he comes now to the invitation. He is coming now to the response. A few weeks back, we were talking as he's closing his sermon, his invitation to all those who are listening is to come in through the narrow gate. He invites people to come in and take the narrow path. The only way that one can enter through the narrow gate is through faith in Christ. He tells his disciples that the narrow way, the way that leads to life is difficult, that few will find it. Last week, Pastor Jason walked us through the next portion where Jesus is telling his disciples to beware of false teachers. What should they look for? He reminds his disciples that they will be able to tell the difference, but from a false teacher to a true teacher based on the fruit of their life. And now the portion that we are looking at this morning is, is probably one of the most difficult parts in the Bible. It's probably one of the most hardest words. I imagine that as Jesus was teaching his disciples, I imagine for this next part that many of his disciples would have been shocked by what they heard. It would have been stunning. Jesus' next words for many would probably be unexpected. But what Jesus is doing is giving a warning to his disciples. And it's a warning for us this morning. Let's read it together, Matthew chapter 7, just so we can kind of see the whole context. I want us to begin with verse 13 of chapter 7. If you got it, say, I'm ready. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And here's our text for this morning, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why don't we bow our heads and let's just pray for our time as we open God's word. Father in heaven, Lord, what a a heavy passage that we have in front of us. And Lord, I thank you for just our time that we get to sing these truths to one another and grateful to get to open up your word. And Lord, I just ask, would you give us clarity this morning? Would you confront us? Would you encourage us? Would you guide my words? I pray this all in the name of Jesus. His people said, church, this passage that we are focusing in on, verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 7, is going to teach us about four vital realities. The first reality that we are going to see in this passage is the reality of a day of judgment. Direct your attention to verse 22 of Matthew 7. Jesus uses these three words, on that day, many will say to me. This is a very real day that is coming. This is referring to the time of the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to return. And when he comes, he is coming in full glory and full power. We think about Jesus' first coming. He came as a baby, humble, meek, lowly. Remember as he grew in and he rides through Jerusalem, he comes humbly on a donkey. But his second coming will look much different. He will come as a king. He will come in glory. And what Jesus is teaching us and reminding us of is the reality of a day of judgment, as the New Testament calls it. Yeah, I'm afraid that in the day that we live in, in this American Christian culture, we are hesitant to talk about a judgment day. We'll hear things like, man, that's old school. We need to be careful with that. Because Jesus talked more about hell and judgment than he did about heaven. See, Jesus is warning his disciples, telling them, you must sober up. There is a day that's coming where there will be a judgment. I want us to consider from the book of Matthew a few pictures or glimpses that we get to see of what is this day of judgment? What is it supposed to look like? What do we know based on God's word? In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus is asked, a- answering the question, 
when should we expect this day to come? And he tells them, Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day, the same one Jesus is talking about, the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven know, nor the Son, but the Father only. This day that Jesus is referencing will come unexpected. Nobody will be prepared for it. It will be a shock. It will be sudden. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see in the book of Matthew that Jesus is going to give various pictures of what this day of judgment will look like. He teaches in parables. One of the parables that Jesus uses in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is talking in eschatological, I totally butchered that word, about, about the end times in chapters Matthew 24 and 25. And he tells us this story about a landowner that has his servants and they go and they plant good seeds into their crop, into their land. But at night, an enemy comes and plants a bunch of weeds amidst the good seeds. The time comes and these crops begin to grow and the servants observe that there are good seeds and now and there are also weeds. And they go to the master and say, master, didn't you plant good seeds? And the master tells the servants in the middle of the night, an enemy came and planted weeds amidst our good seeds. And so the master tells them, hey, when it's time for harvest, I will have the reapers come and I want them to separate the weeds from the wheat. Here's a picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew 13, 41, 42. Speaking of this day, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw, him, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the judgment day. The day where Jesus separates the good seeds, the good wheat, from the, the weeds that are in the land. The other picture that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, 41 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says it's going to be like the shepherd that separates them. Listen to the, what he tells them. This is Matthew chapter 25. He separates the good sheep he says this, Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But he looks to those on his left, the goats, and in verse 41 in Matthew 25, he says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What is this day of judgment going to look like? Jesus shows us these pictures of the good wheat and the weeds, a separation between the sheep and the goats. And here, Jesus is doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. 
He's drawing a line in the sand between the true disciples and the false disciples. This is what will occur on the day of judgment. On this day, it will be final. There is no going back. I, I imagine the scene when people begin to realize that the second coming of Christ has come, and I imagine that panic will set in. Everything they heard about Christ, it is true. And on that day, it will be too late. There is no changing your mind on this day. This passage teaches us the reality of judgment day. And church, this is why we must take the gospel so seriously. Because this day is coming. This is a reality. Oh God, I pray that God would, would save us, would, would rescue us from a flippant Christianity. Text like this, it reminds us, man, there is a day of judgment, which causes us to live differently, to see our neighbors differently, to see our coworkers differently, to see our family members differently. It must sober us up to take the gospel so seriously, to not be casual about our faith, but to remind it. And this is what this text does. It reminds us of the reality of the judgment day. The second reality that we see in this passage is the reality of spiritual self-deception. The reality of spiritual self-deception. Let's look at verse 21 together. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The context of this passage is so important for us to grasp what's happening. Because I think we can easily misunderstand and misinterpret what Jesus is saying. Most of us, when we read these verses, I think that many of us think this way. The narrow way represents all of the Christians that are they're on that path, the narrow way. And the broad way is all the people that are atheists and all the sinners and the partiers. I think that's how we see this passage. The narrow way, those are where all the Christians are. The broad way, those for all the sinners. They've chosen that path. That would be a misunderstanding of this passage. Here's why. Because the Sermon on the Mount is a message directed to disciples. You got your Bibles, flip over two pages or so to Matthew 5. Listen to who the crowd is. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1, Jesus, the text says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Do you know who this group is? 
Jesus is talking directly to a group of people who are saying, man, we're in. That's who this group is. Man, they got, they got the, the Jesus t-shirts. Man, they've been following Jesus. This is his group. These are the groupies. That's who Jesus is talking to. They've been following everywhere. Everybody says, oh, I think those, those people, they're with Jesus. They are part of the in group. It reminds me of the parable of the virgins. Matthew 25, Jesus paints this picture of there are five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Both groups of people are waiting for the bridegroom. That is so important. Both the wise and the foolish, they know the bridegroom is coming, but the foolish were not prepared. The bridegroom comes, the wise virgins, they go into the wedding banquet. When the foolish virgins, they come and they knock on the door and they say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And Jesus replies, who is the bridegroom? Depart from me, I never knew you. See, both the people on the narrow way and the broad way all think that they are on the road that leads to heaven. This is a group of religious people that he's talking to. This is the Judas tragedy. Judas was following along Jesus, seeing everything that he did. Outwardly, he was a part of the group, but inwardly, he was elsewhere. If this was a problem during Jesus' time where he's, he's looking at his disciples and he's telling them, be aware of this. I think we absolutely must be aware of it for us here. This is probably the most tragic verse in the whole Bible. And the word each every week that has just stunned me each week, throughout the week as I've been looking at this passage is verse 22 of Matthew 7. Notice what, what Jesus says, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. See, that word many, it should ring a bell for us. It sounds a lot like what Jesus says in verse 13 of Matthew 7, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Church, you must listen. Every person in this room, you must listen. This passage is telling us that there will be many who assume they are going to heaven, but Christ does not know who they are. Feel the weight of that. There will be many who assume they are going to heaven, but Christ does not know them. This is the greatest mistake that could ever be made to believe that you are saved when really you are not. And there will be many, according to Jesus, who will hear those awful words, I never knew you. They were part of the group. 
how does one spiritually deceive themselves? I want us to consider this. How does one spiritually deceive themselves? Man, because they were following Jesus. They were in the group. I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you guys. We're in the group. We got the t-shirt. We go to the mission trips. We go to the Bible studies. We've got that women's Bible study. We're there. We're serving. That's who this group is that Jesus is talking to. Yet some could be spiritually deceived to think that you're in the group when the fact that Jesus may not know you. Let me give us three things, I think, why people can fall into spiritual deception. The first is this. They have confidence in their religiosity. Their confidence is in their religiosity. They hope that the, the fact that they have done the religious rituals. Man, when I was, when I was a little boy or wherever it was, man, I, I walked the aisle and I, I repeated that prayer. And outwardly, I'm doing these things and their hope is in their religious rituals. A great example is, is the Pharisees. Look at what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 25. I don't have it on the screen, but listen to these words because this gets to the heart of this danger of confidence in religiosity. Listen to what he tells in Matthew 20. This is actually Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Did you catch the point? Outwardly, these people, they look the part. They have the same lingo, they look the same, they're in the same groups, but you know what? Inwardly, their heart is far from God. This is an external faith that is absent of any real substance. Jesus isn't the Lord of their life. They don't have a relationship with him. They are confident in their religious activities and it's absent of any kind of relationship. Do you understand? That's this first group. The second way that we could fall into spiritual deception is this, coming to Christ with improper motives. Coming to Christ with improper motives. I just, I just don't wanna to go to hell, so sign me up, right? It, it, I, as long as I don't have to go to hell, sign me in, I'm in for that. 
they want a savior, but they don't want a Lord. The crowds following Jesus are a great example in John chapter six. May you imagine 5,000 people are gathered, 5,000 plus are gathered, and you see Jesus make a whole bunch of food appear. Remember this? And people are amazed, like, oh, they're eating. We got fish and it's a spectacle. Man, did you see what Jesus did? But you know what they were after? They were after what Jesus could do for them. They didn't really want Jesus. Because look at what Jesus tells them. I don't have it on the screen, but listen. John chapter six, verses 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. See, they should have saw that, those miracles and said, I think this is who he says he is. This is God. But he says this, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, that's why you're following me. You don't really want me. You want what I can give you. And in the same chapter, Jesus' teaching gets hard. And the Bible says that crowds begin to leave because the words were so hard. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you want to go away too? See, this is an example of that. They came to Christ, the spiritually deceived, they came to Christ for the wrong motives. They didn't come to Christ because he is the ultimate treasure. He is the reward. Rather, they came to just receive what he could give them. When Jesus himself is the reward. The last way that people fall into spiritual deception is a failure to examine your faith. Some of you might be thinking, man, this is so intense. But yet throughout the scriptures, we read this, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? For example, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. This is the passage that we probably look at most often every time we take of the Lord's Supper. Paul is reminding the church, hey, when you take of the Lord's Supper, listen to the instruction, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. let every person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. Are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you put in your faith, is your confidence in your faith in Christ alone to save you? Again, Paul's instruction, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Let us move to the third reality that we see in this text. Is the reality of a true disciple. Let's look at verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is an important thing for us to grasp, church. Notice that the false disciple 
had made a profession that Jesus is Lord. We see it in the text. They're crying out, Lord, 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 Lord. Every time that you read that word Lord, it is most often used to refer to Christ as deity. So we've got to ask ourselves, is it not belief that Jesus is Lord what saves us? And yet here in the text, they, that's what they seem to be declaring at the last day, Lord, Lord. We're, they're making a declaration. It reminds me of Romans 10, 9, where Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yet here they are saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is saying, I don't know you. See, what you have happening here with this group of people is our empty words. That's what you have. They said Jesus is Lord with their mouth, but their hearts did not embrace him as Lord. That verbal profession of Jesus is the Lord must be tied to the posture of the heart. You could say anything out of your mouth, but it doesn't have any weight to it if it doesn't actually connect it to your heart and to your soul. And notice what he tells us. Verse chapter 7 Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How do you know that there's true faith? It is followed by obedience. My, my New Testament professor, I think, said it best. He says it this way, the true disciple expresses the sincerity of their confession of Jesus' identity as the Lord through obedient living. Obedience is the necessary expression of true faith. I heard a pastor say it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Genuine faith is always accompanied by obedience. You got to catch what's happening in the story. Their, their religious resume will not allow them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at what they did, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not fill in the bank, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? We get the picture that there is a large group of people that are very much active in their religion. Man, they are doing things. They are busy with ministry. They are active in mission trips. They are showing up to the Bible studies, but these people were not born again. Outward religion, but no inward relationship with the Father through Christ. What God is after is our love. He's after our affection. 
And what we are not talking about, church, is perfection. Man, I, I sin every day. Any, anybody else suffer with that? Every day I sin. I stumble. There is not a perfect Christian in this room. There is only one person who walked the earth and did not sin, and his name is Jesus. But what happens in the life of the Christian, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he is slowly changing us day by day. And it's slow, isn't it? We're not talking about perfection, but progress. So church, let me ask us, what are evidences of saving faith? Maybe some of you are in the, the room and you feel like you're being put in a corner and, and you're saying, well, how do I know? I'm, how do I know that I'm saved? What are evidences? Let's consider what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. He opens up with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. People who have saving faith have realized that they are spiritually bankrupt without Christ. They have realized that they are a spiritual beggar. That is evidence of saving faith. They mourn because they realize that they are a sinner and they are helpless without the redeeming work of Christ on their behalf. Have you ever come to that place of brokenness? I think of the picture that Jesus gives of, of the Pharisee who walks into the temple and is just proud and is praying and, and saying, oh God, thank you that I'm not like those sinners back there. Thank you that I'm so much better than they are. And in the back of the temple, Jesus describes a tax collector who's a sinner. And he's ashamed to be there. And he's sitting in the very back of the temple and he's beating his chest. And he says, oh God, would you have mercy on me? A sinner. And Jesus says, you know which of those men left justified that day? It was the man in the back. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken over their sin, who see the weight of their sin. Oh, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? Man, that's, those are evidences of saving faith. Jesus again says in the Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long to grow. They're thirsty to know God. Not perfect. We're stumbling, but we're, we're slowly making progress. And church, I, I ask us this morning, what is the fruit of your life? Do you look like Jesus more today than you did five years ago? That's a good sign of saving faith. Do you hate your sin more today than you did five years ago? It's a good sign. Do you love God more today than you did five years ago? 
Those are marks of the true Christian. Those are the realities of saving faith. Lastly, what I want to end on is the reality of a day of reward. As we see in the text, there will be many who choose the broad gate, who choose the broad way. But there is a whole another story. John in the book of Revelation just paints this other picture. In Revelation 7, 9, and 10, he says this, behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Yes, there will be many who choose the broad way, but as we could see in this passage, there is a multitude who chose to take the narrow way. And there will be many who will hear the opposite words on the other spectrum that hear Jesus' words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? That day is also coming. And I hope for us to be in that group to say, Jesus, we've been waiting. We have been waiting. And oh, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a challenging passage, sobering passage, but oh, so necessary. Lord, because just as you spoke to the disciples that were gathered with you and if you saw it as important then, it is important now that we do not deceive ourselves to simply embracing a external religion. Oh Lord, but we want to be about an inward heart change, an inward posture that sees you as the Lord of our life. And so God, I pray, would you just speak to us this morning? Encourage, confront this morning, we pray. You would help us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.